Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. them and he bars our way with fire let us go from this place man cannot fight against a god it's better to die in battle with a god than live in shame praise god and down into it Amen. Welcome to Vertical Life Church. I'm Pastor Joey, for those of you that are new. And again, we're in week 14 of our series, The Great Romance. And today we are talking about the Red Sea Crossing. And it's pretty amazing how God orchestrated these things. Because back 14 weeks ago when we were planning out this series, we did not have a date for our baptism weekend. But uh, what's amazing is that the crossing of the Red Sea coincides with the symbolism of what baptism really is. And, and so it's amazing that this all kind of landed today uh, in on this day. And I love it at the end of that little clip. The woman responds, is your life worth so much? She's like, run for your lives. And she's like, is your life worth so much? And I'm here to tell you, beloved, 
Your life is worth so much that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's amazing. Such a great promise in truth. Your life is worth the life of our Savior. Uh, and uh, in just a moment, we're going to get into how this pinnacle act of God in this story, as he's drawing Israel out of slavery and into the promised land, how it reflects baptism. But at the point in the story, if you've not been with us, Israel now has been enslaved for 400 years. Moses goes and asks Pharaoh to let the people go. Mo Mo Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. Ten different times, and God sends ten plagues. And finally, Pharaoh lets the people go, and they're able to leave the nation of Egypt. And they're on their way out and, uh, in this story. And, uh, and so as Israel is making their way through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where Moses is leading them, God appears in this pillar of a cloud, and he's directing them through the wilderness. He says, don't go the normal route. Don't go the way you would normally come in, the, 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 the way you would leave Egypt and go into the land of Midian. Go a different way, and God begins to lead them through this pillar of cloud on this new way. And as they get to uh, the end of the, 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 uh, the trail that they're taking, they're surrounded and hemmed in by mountains, and so God says to double back and park on the beach. And by this time, Pharaoh has another change of heart, and he goes after the nation of Israel, wanting to destroy them once and for all. And we read about what God did in this moment, Psalm chapter 77, verses 16 through 20. In Psalm 77, it says, When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind, and, li and lightning lit up the world. So God didn't just send an east wind. He sent a massive storm. And in this storm, something took place. The earth trembled and shook. Verse 19, it says, The road led through the sea, your pathway through mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. So here they get, at, they're at this beach. They can't keep going any further because the mountains are in front of them. Pharaoh is behind them. They're kind of stuck. So what does God do? He parts the sea, and they walk through on dry ground. Now this event is one of the most contested events in all the Bible, and they're uh, much archaeology that is done surrounding this whole story, but they've really narrowed down the Red Sea crossing points to really two main places. Skeptics believe that they didn't even cross the sea. They went through a little puddle of mud. Uh, they called the Sea of Reeds, and they went up through the north, which wasn't the way God told them to go. But um, biblical scholars and, and archaeologists really narrowed down two main places for them. If we could throw up the first uh, graphic there. I want to show you just um, the, the map of where they were going. So Israel started off here in Goshen. This is where they were living. God says to take a route. So they end up going down this way through the wilderness, and they come back up, and they, they head this way. Now, the first location that many think are is their crossing site is Nueva Beach, which is right here. The only problem is there's no real way to get to Nueva Beach from the south, and there's no place to double back. Though they're hemmed in by mountains on either side, not all the details in the biblical account match. The, the best place of, uh, that matches is down here at the Straits of Tyran. Now, what's interesting here 
is not only do they get to a stopping point in the mountains, but they have to double back to this beachy area. And across from there is the mountain that God uh, told them would be across adjacent on the other side. Pharaoh's army would have come down this way and planted right here. So they were literally stuck. They couldn't go anywhere. And the Bible says that God parted the waters and there was a road that no one knew was there. That there was a land bridge of some type that was there. Let's go to the next one. Here at the Straits of Tyran, we, we have what is now visible by the air is coral reef. A coral reef that stretches from the southern tip of Egypt all the way in to Arabia and to the land of Midian at that time. Go ahead to the next one. Right now, as you can see, an actual visual picture. This is all submerged underwater. It's, it's visible only from the air that you can see this. But these were once connected going from 11 miles from the southern tip of Egypt all the way into Arabia. Go to the next one. And you can see where they were connected. There was cliffs on either side. But as they were connected and they stretched all the way across, you had literally a road stretching from one side to the other that no one knew was there. How amazing is that? Thousands of years ago, God does a miracle. and We can still see remnants of that miracle today. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle is talking to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about baptism, and he relates it back to this event with the Red Sea. This is why it's important to study not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, even these events that are happening in the life of the nation of Israel, because if you don't understand what God did and what God was doing in Exodus and through the nation of Israel, you won't understand a lot about what Jesus said and what the apostles said in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 1, here's what Paul says. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. God performed many miraculous signs in the nation of Israel during this time when he first appeared in the great pillar of the cloud. And that cloud led the Israelites again from Egypt into the promised land. That pillar of cloud became a pillar of fire, warding off the Egyptians and also lit their way at night. It stood between the Hebrews and the Egyptians so Israel could safely cross through the Red Sea. And here what Paul reveals to us is this event was a baptism. It was actually a baptism of many baptisms, a baptism with three parts. They were baptized in the cloud, they were baptized in the sea, and they were baptized into Moses. Moses was their savior. He was their lawgiver. He was the one that told them about the Passover that would allow the blood of the lamb to help them overcome or escape the curse of death. And he led them from Egypt out of bondage into freedom. He led them through the Red Sea. And he also was the mouthpiece of God who gave them the law that established the covenant relationship that they would have had. So when they were baptized in this moment, they were baptized into their Savior. They were baptized in the cloud. What was the cloud? It was the very presence of God. It was God with them. And then were baptized into the sea, the Red Sea. 
So just as there are three parts in this baptism in the book of Exodus, there are actually three baptisms that not only prepared the Hebrews to live life with God and live as God's chosen people, a nation of priests, there are three baptisms for the believer of Jesus Christ to walk through to prepare them to live life not only with God, but according to who God has created them to be. So this event in the Old Testament has symbolized for us what God intends for us in the New Testament. It also coincides with the ordination of the high priest. After they had gotten out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, God told Moses to appoint Aaron and his sons as the priesthood, and they would offer sacrifices for the people. They would act as the go-between between the people and God and, uh, and serve the people. And so they had to go through a special ordination process, which also included three baptisms that are symbolic in the very baptisms we go through today. So before the high priest was declared worthy to minister in the holy place, he, they were the only ones able to go in and sacrifice and stand before the people before God. Before Aaron could fulfill his purpose as the high priest who got to go into the Holy of Holies and offer the atonement sacrifice, which would expunge the sins of the nation for the next year, he had to be ordained. And in 1 Peter 2.9, here's what the Word of God says about us as the church says, ye are a chosen generation, a royal what? What's that say? A royal priesthood. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with God, you're not just a Christian, you're a priest of God Most High. You are a royal priesthood. You've been ordained. And this is for you. That, that, why? That you may show forth not only the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that you can stand as a testimony before all men about the glory of God. This is who you are. So just as the priest went through three baptisms in his ordination to rise up to the call of God, we too must go through three baptisms in the ordination of the believer to rise up to the call of God for our lives. The first baptism, if you're taking notes, is the baptism into the Savior. This is what we call getting saved or being born again. Moses became the Savior of Israel, and Jesus has become our Savior. Moses gave them the law which covered their sin. Jesus came, fulfilled the law, and washed our sin away. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says, God saved you by His grace when you believed. You cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. Salvation comes by grace and grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone and His death and resurrection. You cannot earn salvation by doing good. You cannot lose it by messing up. It is a gift of God. You receive it as a gift. And when you do, you are baptized into Christ and you are washed by His precious blood. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says, now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the very blood of Christ. It is the baptism into the Savior. So remember, it was faith in God through the Passover sacrifice that caused Israel to escape the curse of death. Through Moses, atonement is possible because of the law. That covenant gave Israel a way to cover their sins, but Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. He is our Passover lamb. He was not only crucified, 
during Passover, right when Passover was beginning, but he fulfilled that once and for all sacrifice for us, a prophetic picture of the blood that Jesus was to pour out. So forgiveness and reconciliation with God, being made right with God, doesn't occur until you've been washed in the blood, until you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as you trust in his death and resurrection. His blood is then applied to your life, and you are baptized into the blood, into the Savior, and you become born again. Aaron and his sons, before they could become priests and serve in the presence of God, they too had to be baptized with the blood of the sacrifice. In Exodus 29, 20, the Bible says, Then slaughter it and apply some of its blood to the right earlobes of Aaron and his sons. Also put it on the thumbs of their right hands and the big toes of their right feet. Think about how weird that is. Right, they, they, they sacrifice the animal, and then they're like, here, let me put a little bit right there behind the ears. Let me get your thumb and your toe. You know, but what does it symbolize? It symbolizes that not one part of their body, from head to toe, was not covered in the blood. And for you and I, when we're covered by the blood of Jesus, there's not one part of us that's not covered. We are anointed from head to toe. And so when God looks at you, beloved, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the glory and perfection of his son. The glory of God. Your sins, though they be scarlet, are washed white as snow. So beautiful. Such an amazing picture. And not just anointed, but covered. So who baptizes you into Christ? In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, we see that the human body has many parts. There are many parts that make up one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body, the body of Christ, by one. Who is that? By the, by the Spirit. So we're baptized into the body of Jesus through the blood by the Holy Spirit. And we all share that same Spirit. That's why we're connected together. Just as a husband and wife are one in Spirit, the church is one in the Holy Spirit. We have an intimacy, a bond, and a connection, which is why no matter where you worship, you're at home because you're with the beloved. You're with family. We're all connected if we're born again and born of the Spirit. The second baptism is the baptism of the sea. Moses led Israel through the waters, and it, they left their old life of bondage and slavery behind as they walked on dry ground to the promised land. And so they did this. It symbolizes leaving the old behind. Paul says, the old is past and all things have become new. The old is gone, the new has come. And so they went down into the water. Their old life was put to death and they came up out of the water, rising up to new life as free people. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter says, in that water is a picture. Somebody say picture. All right, it's important that we... See what Scripture is saying. It says that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you. Not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that the Red Sea did not save Israel. God saved Israel. So the water did not save Israel. God saved Israel. It was their faith in the blood sacrifice, in the atonement, following their Savior that enabled them to find salvation. This is the same for baptism. The water is simply a picture of what has already occurred in your life when you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
It's a picture of the baptism of blood that enabled you to go from death to life. You were once dead in your sins. Now you're alive with Christ in his resurrection. So going through the waters of baptism, it's what Peter says in verse 21. He says, it's a response to God with a clean conscience. Well, how did you get a clean conscience? If you're a guilty sinner, how do you get a clean conscience? You get a clean conscience by having your sins forgiven through trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So your clean conscience has come, and because of that clean conscience, you respond in baptism. Water baptism is only effective because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul said, if Jesus be not rose from the dead, we're the most miserable people, people to be pitied in all the world. Why? Because we so try hard to honor a God that doesn't exist. That's the importance of the resurrection. So if Jesus is not raised from the dead, it doesn't matter if you're baptized. It doesn't matter anything that we do. So it, it's to no effect. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus does. And faith in his death and resurrection. It's only effective because of the resurrection. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, we see what baptism really is. It's really the first step or the first commandment to be fulfilled by any disciple of Jesus. When you make that step of faith and you trust in Jesus, it is that step that you make to publicly declare that you are following the Lord. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Jesus is telling his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice you don't become a disciple after baptism, but every disciple is baptized. Make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not salvation. It is the first step after salvation. It's a symbolic act that is done after a person receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Romans 6, 4, Paul writes, We were buried with him in baptism into his death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's that symbolic, dead in your sins, raised to new life in Jesus Christ. So the, here at Vertical Life Church, I know there are many that come from different traditions. In some churches, they will baptize infants and babies, and they have a history of, of doing this. We don't do that here at our church because we see that more as an act of dedication of the parents to raise their children up in a godly home. There, there's really no biblical foundation for baptizing infants. We only see in Scripture someone giving their life to Christ and then being baptized. And it's our position that the only thing that can save your child's soul is that they trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, which is why it's important for parents to raise their children up in the way they should go so that when they're older, they'll not depart from it. That the best thing you can do as a parent is to live the example and speak life and truth into the lives of your kids so that they will trust in Jesus. And then baptism comes after to publicly proclaim the decision that they made. That's why we call it believer's baptism. The only thing that can save a child's soul is trusting in Christ as their Lord and Savior. So water baptism also serves as another purpose. Though it's the first step, it's a picture, it's a symbol, it's also a commandment. It is also the act of cleansing in preparation for you to live the new life in Christ. Uh, whenever the, uh, the priest was being ordained, not only were they baptized in the blood, but they were also baptized in water. Exodus chapter 29, verse 4, 
It says, present Aaron and his sons at the entrance of the tabernacle and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in his priestly garments, the tunic, the robe worn with the ephod, the ephod itself, the chest piece, and wrap the decorative sash of the ephod around him, place the turban on his head, and fasten the sacred medallion to the turban. So the priest had these special clothes he had to wear when he was ministering before the presence of the Lord. They all have prophetic significance. And he had to wear those. He couldn't wear anything else when he was ministering before the Lord. But before he got his special clothes... He had to be washed in the water. He had to be prepared to receive the, the clothes that would elevate him into the role that God had appointed or anointed for him. He could not wear the clothes that, he was, uh, that were prepared for his role until he had been washed by the water. And I would suggest that until every believer who's trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior fulfills that first command of God, being water baptized, they too are not ready to step into the role or the calling that God has prepared for them. Because we too also have new clothes that have been prepared for us. Galatians 3.27 says, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new what? New clothes. So you're washed in the blood for salvation, but you get washed in the water to prepare you to walk in the newness of life, to be the representative of Christ here on the earth. I remember when I was baptized when I was a kid. I was about five or six years old, I think. I, I accepted Jesus when I was four, and then uh, I was baptized in my uncle's church. And uh, I've told this story before, but it, I just think it's kind of humorous and, and will relate to some of you maybe a little bit because we're getting ready to get baptized, and I'm not thinking the water is going to be very warm, so you'll have a memory today. But... Uh, um, my memory was I, I was young, and I guess I was somewhat old enough for my parents to ask me to pack my own bag. So I had to prepare my change of clothes because we, we actually had to wear a robe to get baptized. And so we, I had to have a change of clothes to change out of my Sunday clothes and then get baptized and then change back. And uh, so I prepared my bag and got everything done. And that Sunday was a special Sunday, so I was wearing khaki pants and a button-up shirt. And uh, I looked really nice and... When, towards the end of the service, when he called for people to be baptized, I went around to change into my baptism clothes. Unfortunately, I didn't remember a pair of underwear to change into. I only had the pair I was wearing. And my little brain didn't compute that I could not wear underwear to be baptized and then put my underwear back on afterwards. So I wore my only pair of underwear into the baptism. So I get dunked, and I'm, I'm soaked, and, uh, you know, everyone's clapping, celebrating. It was a great day. And I get out of the bath, you know, the, the tub, because there was like a giant bathtub. Um, I get back to the, the men's bathroom to change, and I open my bag, and I'm like, huh, what do I do? I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and so I had to decide, do I keep my underwear on and just put my pants over them or, or what? And I couldn't think of any reality where I wasn't wearing underwear. I just didn't seem right. So I left my wet underwear on. And I put my khaki pants on over that. And, of course, because my parents were in ministry, that meant we had to stand around and talk for about 45 minutes after church was over. And my underwear had bled through my khaki pants. And you could see, like, my wet underwear through my pants. And um, my brother took lots of opportunity to make fun of me. And it was quite embarrassing. So I will forever remember my water baptism. So I would have willingly given up those clothes for the new clothes that God has prepared for me. Yeah, the, the clothes of Jesus Christ. But that's what it's for. It's to prepare you to walk into this life God has called you into. 
And who baptizes you with water? It's other disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize new disciples, those that represent the body of Christ, those who've been washed in the blood and adopted into the family of God. So we have the baptism of the blood or in the Savior, the baptism of water, and then thirdly, the baptism in the cloud. The cloud that was leading the Israelites, moving them from Egypt into the promised land. They moved to the rear, became fire to ward off the Egyptians so that they could get to the promised land in safety. And that word for cloud means a covering. It means a covering. So the Israelites weren't just following a cloud. They were actually covered. There was a covering over them as they were being led, a cloud of fire, and it was protecting them from the enemy. And then as the Lord uh, looked down, as the Egyptians were coming to kill the Israelites, the Lord looks down at the Egyptians from the pillar of cloud and fire. Exodus 14, 24 is what it says. It says, Just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. When they were baptized in the cloud, the power of God overthrew the enemy. He wrecked their weapons of warfare. He confused them. He scattered them. He caused them to flee. And then the mighty wind blew apart the sea. In Exodus 15, verses 8 through 10, it says, At the blast of your breath, somebody say breath. At the blast of your breath, the waters piled up. Surging water stood straight up like a wall. In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. The enemy boasted, I will chase them and catch up with them. I will plunder them and consume them. I will flash my sword, my powerful breath, and I will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. The word breath in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word ruach, which is also translated as spirit. So when God blew his breath, it was with his spirit that he blew and he conquered the enemy. When the cloud was covering, it was the presence of God. It was the Holy Spirit that covered them. It was the Holy Spirit that bent the chariot wheels. It was the Holy Spirit that crashed or made the way through the sea and crashed it back upon the enemy. The Holy Spirit is associated with wind, breath, fire, and is the mechanism by which God does the supernatural. In the Old Testament, it says, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. The Spirit of God is the agent of power in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist says he's baptizing and people are asking him, are you the one, are you the Messiah, are you the one we've been looking for? He responds in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I baptize with water those who have repented of their sins and have turned to God, but someone is coming who is greater than I am, hallelujah, he's greater than I am, not worthy even to be his slave or carry his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. With the breath of God and with fire. He, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the breath of God and fire. And he does this for a specific purpose. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Beloved, you are baptized into Jesus by the blood for purification. You are baptized into water as by the disciples for preparation. But you are baptized into the Holy Spirit for power. For power. So that you can live the Christian life, the life God has called you to. When Jesus baptizes you into the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God becomes your covering. The anointing of God comes upon your life for the working of power, not to make you a superhero, but so that you can fulfill the call of God on your life, the call to be his witness. And I believe the reason why many believers aren't living the overcoming life, we, we all struggle, but there's a difference between crumbling underneath the weight of the struggle and rising up over the struggle is because they've not yet received the power to be who God has called and created them to be. And I believe God wills that they will encounter the Holy Spirit, the anointing baptism of the Spirit. It's for every person, and it comes at different times. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Some get the baptism of the Spirit when they're saved. Some get it when they're baptized. Some get it after they're saved, before they're baptized. Someone get it after they've been baptized. The, the, the God will pour out His Spirit when He wills. But the purpose of it is that in the process by which we seek it is that we surrender to the will of God. We say, God, I'm tired of living life my own way. I want to live my life for your honor and glory. Your will be done, not my will be done. Fill me with your spirit and give me the power to live out your call on my life. And I believe that when the believer seeks the spirit for power to fulfill his purpose, then God will answer that prayer. He will answer. In Exodus chapter 29, before Aaron could actually walk into the presence of God and offer sacrifices before the throne, before the glory, he had to have one last baptism. In Exodus 29, 7, it says, Then anoint him by pouring the anointing oil over his head. Oil represents the anointing of God, the anointing of the Spirit. So he was Baptized in blood, he was washed in the water. But before the anointing of the Spirit, he could not stand in the presence of God and fulfill his purpose. The same in Acts chapter 2, before the disciples were ready to go into all the world and preach the gospel, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. And as they were all gathered into one place praying, the Spirit descended. There was a mighty rushing wind, and the fire of God fell upon them, and they began to speak in tongues, and signs and wonders and miracles flowed from that day on. Peter preached a message, and 3,000 people came to Christ in one day. The power of the Spirit comes upon you so that you can rise up to the call that God has placed on your life. And He desires us to take His presence into every sphere, every sector, every area of life so that His kingdom can come and His will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is so important to understand. And until you understand what happened here at the Red Sea and through the story of the Exodus, you don't quite grasp what God is inviting you into in the New Testament. And this is important because just after they leave 
They're in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They're in Sinai. Uh, God's appearing before them. He's instructing them on how to build this tabernacle. He tells Moses to build a gold box and to set some angels on top of the box. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody see Indiana Jones? You know what I'm talking about? You know, the Nazis have it now, but, you know, we had it at one time, according to the movie. But the Ark of the Covenant, this was a gold box that contained the Ten Commandments. And the, the top of the box, the lid with the angels on it, was called the mercy seat. And when Moses or the priest would go to offer sacrifices, God's presence would descend, and he would hover over the box. And that's where God would meet with men. That's where he would communicate with them, give instruction. The glory of the Lord would shine for all to see. Matter of fact, it was so intense, often the priests couldn't continue their work because of the magnitude of his presence. Moses would leave his presence and his face would be glowing because of the awesome glory of God. This was an incredible thing that God did. But inside the ark, God had Moses put the Ten Commandments. So the ark became the sign, the representative the, the, the physical uh, symbol of God's covenant relationship with Israel. That everywhere the ark went, God, not only God's presence, but the, the memory of this relationship that I am your God and you are my people. And these are the promises that I have for you. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 16, God reveals that there's another name for the ark of the covenant. In verse 16, he says, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. The ark of the covenant is also called the ark of the testimony. It is the testimony of Yahweh, the testimony of God, wherever the ark would go. When Jesus said in Acts 1.8, when the spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. What is he saying? He's saying when you have been cleansed, when you have been prepared, you have been anointed, you shall carry with you the testimony. What do witnesses tell? They tell about what they've seen and what they've heard. They talk about the testimony, the testimony of Christ. The baptism of the believer, the completed baptism of the believer enables the believer to become the physical representation of God's promise to carry his glory. We become the ark of the covenant. We become the ark of the testimony. The ark was carried on poles on the shoulders of priests, but beloved, the priests now carry the testimony and the presence inside of them. If God is in you, then you carry the Lord with you wherever you go. Salvation shall come to all who repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the testimony. Salvation is for the whole world. And he's written this not on tablets of stone, but now he's written this truth on our very own hearts. You are a carrier of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we've become the ark, and God has placed that seal of agreement in us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, And as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We're always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy through your belief in the truth. 
John 14, 17 says, He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you and now later will be where? In you. The Spirit of God lives in you. He came into you when you were born again. He prepares you when you're cleansed by water. And he empowers you when you're plunged into his presence. And the Spirit is the sign of the testimony. So with Moses, Yahweh took them through the Red Sea so God could dwell with them. Jesus went to the cross so God could live in you. It's a powerful thing. So you must be purified. You must be prepared. And to be his witness, you must receive power. The ordination of the believer is not complete until you've experienced all three baptisms. Maybe you're here today and you've been purified. You're on your way to heaven. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been baptized. You've gone through believer's baptism. You've told the world by your act of faith and obedience that I'm a child of God. I'm following Jesus with my whole life. You've gone through the waters of baptism, but maybe you've yet to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because you've not been seeking it. I'm here today to tell you, you're not going to be able to experience everything God has for you until you receive the anointing of the Spirit. And what's amazing is that when Aaron received the oil, he was then able to go into the presence of God. When you receive an encounter with the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, your intimacy level with God accelerates. I have lived my whole life I don't know how many church services I've ever skipped, but I bet I could count them on five fingers. I've not missed a lot of church. My parents were in ministry. I've served God almost my whole life. But I lived 30 years of my life saved, baptized, but extremely religious. I went to church. I did the Bible studies. I played in the worship team. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke for the most part of my life, for a few rebellious years when I was in middle school, but we won't talk about that. Um, but for the most part, I served the Lord. But the one thing that made me feel right with God was not my intimacy with Him. It was my knowledge of Scripture, how many Bible verses I had or how many facts that I learned. It was a knowledge-based relationship with God. And what I realized is that I've spent my whole life erecting a religion. But when I was brought down in humility, because I had to face the reality of my own heart, I realized that there was only one thing that I ever really wanted, and that was to be right with God. If I was right with God, if I had God in my life, then everything else would work out. Everything else would be okay. didn't matter what else happened in life. If I could just know that God and I were okay. And so one day I was in my living room, and I was crying out to the Lord, I was praying, I was weeping, I was confessing sin, I was like uh, facing losing my whole life. Everything was about to crumble down, and I just remember hearing the whisper of God, he said, just bow down to the ground, bow low. And I'm like, okay, what else do I have to lose? So I bowed to the ground, and I'm praying, and in that moment, I felt, I was home by myself, nobody else was in the house. I felt the impressions on the carpet behind me as somebody walk up behind me. I felt a hand lay on my back, 
and instantly all the pain that I've been holding on to my entire life began to flood out of me. I weep harder than I've ever cried in my entire life. There's probably still snot stains in my carpet where I was, where I was crying like a baby. But when I got up from that moment, I knew I was different. I knew something had changed. The struggle I had was no longer the struggle I had. And I had a hunger for God I had never felt before. I began to hear his voice more clearly. I used to say all the time, man, I wish I could hear God's voice like other people. I wonder what that sounds like. And finally, I'm beginning to discern that. God began to uh, work in powerful ways. I began to experience the gifts of the Spirit and learn more about how God works and moves and be able to minister to people in powerful ways. We had a testimony uh, here a couple weeks ago uh, or last week of someone that I had a chance to pray for that was healed. That didn't happen because I'm anything. It happened because he's good. But I, through the experience of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I ha now have what I need to do what he's called me to do. And many of us, we just get it wrapped up in our minds. If I do this and I do this and I do this, then maybe God will like me and accept me. And Jesus said, no, I did this. You're already accepted. Just bring me your stuff. Give me your heart. And I'm going to do more with you than you could possibly imagine. Scripture says I'm exceedingly and abundantly able to do beyond what you could ask or think by the mighty power that worketh in you. There's a power in you, if you have the Holy Spirit, that God wants to do a miraculous things. But it doesn't come with pride. It comes with surrender. It doesn't come in fear. It comes in faith. And some of you, you're here today, and you don't have a relationship with God. You've never had that time where you said, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and, and I don't know that if I were to die today, that if I stood before you, you'd let me into heaven. Well, here, beloved, Jesus said, all who call unto me shall be saved. There's going to be a moment here where we're going to go into a time of prayer. I actually invite the worship team forward to come and begin playing. But in just a moment, we have prayer. If you need to receive Jesus as your Savior, you come. And I promise you, you're going to have an encounter that's going to change your life. Maybe you've been saved for a long time and you've never followed the Lord's example in baptism. You've not been prepared to walk in that life God has prepared for you. You need to come forward and let us know you want to be baptized and we'll get you on the list for this afternoon. And I promise you, you're not going to regret it. Maybe you've been saved, you've been baptized, but you're still holding a piece of your heart. And today you know you need to give that to God so he can fill you with the Spirit. And you can start living for what he's called you for. You need to come forward so we can pray with you. There's no embarrassing moments at the altar. It's called the mercy seat for a reason. It was the mercy seat on the ark. And in Hebrews it says, we can go boldly to the throne of his grace and find mercy when we need it. So when you come forward, there's no embarrassment. There's no fear. There's grace, there's love, and there's mercy, and there's God at work. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we go into the time of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for what you're about to do in some people's lives today. I thank you for those that already know right now, as I'm speaking, that they're going to respond, that you're speaking to their hearts. God, I thank you for the one that needs to receive you as their Lord and Savior. I thank you, God, 
that today they're going to be born again, washed in the blood, made new, made holy, made clean. God, for those who have already decided to follow you in baptism, and I thank you for those that are going to come and that are going to join the list to set themselves up to live the life that you've called them to live so that you can reveal your goodness and your, your love in their lives. And God, I thank you for those who are hungry for more. They've been saved, they've been baptized, but they've yet to experience the power and the filling of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'd have your way in their lives right now. I pray you'd even speak now to their hearts, to their minds, the things that have been in the way, that they could come and confess that, get it out of the way, so that there's nothing that would prevent you from filling their lives and having an encounter with them this morning. God, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We thank you for bringing Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land so that through their testimony we could know that by trusting in Jesus we could get out of bondage to sin and be set on firm footing on the rock of our salvation and we could find freedom in Jesus' name. We can find freedom from depression, freedom from anxiety, freedom from addictions, freedom from relationship decisions and mistakes, bad habits, routines, God, that there's, you have promises and you have purposes for all of our lives. I thank you, God, for those that are going to get healed today. I thank you that for those that are going to receive a prophetic word that are going to set them on the right path. And I thank you for those that even now your spirit is just filling with love. Just praise you in Jesus' name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give.